Hello, I'm Sahel Mirza, and welcome to this special episode in Series 2 of the Voices of Care podcast. I'm joined today by the Right Honourable Stephen Dorrell, former Secretary of State for Health and Chair of Public Policy Projects. The Voices of Care podcast looks to get to the heart of the issues facing the health and social care system by speaking to leaders about how we can truly enable the healthcare workforce of the future. Today's a special episode because we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the NHS and the modern social care system. And perhaps it's vitally important to understand how it can transform and enable its workforce as it moves into its next few decades. Who better to talk about that than my guest today? Stephen, thank you very much for your time and uh, joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure always to spend time with you. Before we get into the substantive issues, I wanted to take this opportunity as someone who's got uh, decades of experience uh, in healthcare. If you could just share about your current work, particularly with uh, public policy projects. Uh, Well, public policy projects, PPP, I always call it for short, um, is an independent uh, policy agency. We work with private sector partners at the interface between the public and private sector. My basic thesis, as I've been developing it, is that uh, you, in the policy world, uh, there are lots of people writing pamphlets about how the world might be better. There are rather fewer people working with those at the front end of actually delivering these aspirations. And what we try to do is to fill in the gap between aspiration and reality. That's the hard edge of policy, as I understand it. And that gap between aspiration and reality, I think, is an apt description of where we might be. Um, We're on the 75th anniversary. The Department of Health published figures uh, in May, uh, showing record numbers of doctors and nurses. Um, At the same time, unfortunately, we're seeing over 43,000 vacancies in the nursing profession. Uh, The government's manifesto commitment to increase GPs by 6,000, I'm afraid, has been shown to be lacking. Just how pervasive is the crisis? You, you, you can draw on so, such a vast array of experience. The workforce crisis uh, touches every aspect of health and social care. Uh, you're 100% right. Uh, and if we're going to deliver the aspirations of our health policy, uh, we have to have uh, properly staffed, properly motivated services across the health and social care sector. It's no good having uh, staffing in, in one part of it. It's a uh, joined up sector. I'm going to change the tone of your question, if I may, at the beginning of a podcast. Because wouldn't it be nice if in talking about uh, health and social care policy uh, in the UK, uh, we started by talking about outcomes, what was delivered for citizens? Mm. Because in the end, the measure of success of health policy, in my mind, is less about how many doctors and nurses you employ or how many new hospitals you build. It's more about uh, what you deliver for citizens and whether the, 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 the experience of their lives uh, is of greater health span in the jargon, that's to say longer, uh, longer healthier lives, uh, not merely longer lives, but longer period of good health in life in order to have a fulfilling life. And in that, by measured by that measure, uh, the truth is that across uh, the health and ca- social care sector, under governments of all political parties, we've made progress over the 75 years of the National Health Service that was unimaginable in the late 1940s. Now, that's partly the commitment of the staff that we're going to talk about primarily today. It's partly also 
technical advance in uh, healthcare delivery uh, and in the, uh, the advance of digital technology and any number of different technologies. Uh, it's also about policy development over that 75 years that's focused not just on health and care services, but on the other things that influence health outcomes, decent housing, jobs, environmental improvement, and so on. And I think sometimes when we celebrate the NHS, we celebrate an institution, but we forget the purpose of the institution. And the purpose of the institution is not merely longer, but also happier and more fulfilling lives. And while there's still plenty to do, it is a story of success. Absolutely. I think any one of us who've either personally or professionally been involved with the social care or the NHS system would, would support that completely. And talking of the patient experience and uh, the population's perceptions, um, just trying to take the lens back a little bit apart from the tactical problems that we might face today. The British Social Attitudes Survey in 2010 recorded the highest levels of satisfaction with the NHS. The, the latest iteration uh, is at the very lowest level for, for 40 years. NHS staff survey talks about a third of staff wanting to leave. Can you perhaps shed light on how we've got here over these last 10 or 12 years where we've now got unprecedented strike action? Well, uh, and the answer to that is, uh, I've answered your first question by reminding us that, that this is fundamentally a story of success. Mm. But of course, in real life, there are hard edge questions that have to be addressed if we're going to continue to build in the future mm. on that story of success, starting with the public's perception mm. of health and care services. Uh, it's hardly a surprise, is it? that when there are problems of access to primary care and there are problems of access to secondary care demonstrated by waiting times in A&E departments and waiting lists for uh, planned care, uh, there are well-documented issues of, of uh, f uh, financial pressure associated with social care. All of those things, of course, undermine pub the public's confidence that uh, the services they may need at some point in the future, n not currently determined, uh, those services may not be available at the time that they need them to the quality that they uh, are entitled to expect. Uh, and those, the, when that's true, of course, that undermines public confidence. And th that is a story that was happening before the pandemic. I think it's worth reminding ourselves that a significant contributory factor to those issues were the, uh, the pressures caused by the pandemic. And it clearly, in particular, waiting times for planned care got significantly worse during that time. But that's not to say they weren't, uh, the pressures weren't rising before the pandemic. And we need now to be addressing some of those issues for the future. So th that's the, from the patient, the citizen's perspective. Yep. Uh, within the health service, the staff perspective you asked me about, uh, it's been a problem, to be honest, for quite a long time, I think, mm. uh, particularly in the NHS, also true in social care, and it's important to keep bringing these two uh, different parts of the same system, choosing my words carefully, uh, important to continue to, to consider them both in tandem. Uh, across the sector, uh, we recruit out of school and university uh, people who join the services uh, out of a sense of commitment 
to delivering high quality care to their fellow citizens. So we recruit idealists. Mm. Uh, by the time they're 30, too many of them are cynics and too many of those cynics are by then leaving the service because they, the idealism that brought them in in the first place hasn't been reflected in their experience of working within those services. That's a challenge for management. That's not the fault of the individuals, that's the management that isn't delivering a context for uh, work that reflects the idealism that leads people to join it. Well, we're going to touch upon that because I think the issue of culture and leadership is fundamental in terms of the transformation. I wanted to step back again to talk about funding. It's not the only lever, but international comparisons would suggest that that has been a contributory factor, particularly over the last few years for the NHS. Uh, I agree. Actually, interestingly, international <coughs> comparisons, you can argue, has, the, the gap has closed hmm. uh, between the UK and some of the international comparators in terms of the percentage of national income devoted to health and care services, the gap used to be wider between us and our European comparators than it is now. So there are, there are several ways of looking at funding, of course. Uh, one is the international comparisons, uh, where uh, the story isn't as bad as it used to be. Um, in a sense, if you're working in the sector or you rely on the sector for its services, more important to you is whether the service is able to meet the demands placed upon it rather than just saying, oh, it's just as bad here as it is elsewhere. Uh, and measured by that measure, uh, the capacity of the sector to keep up with the, uh, depending which way you look at it, the demands that are placed upon it, or more positively, the opportunities to improve people's lives, measured by that measure, we're not moving forward fast enough. No, absolutely. One of the things that uh, we're also celebrating now, it's a year since the Health and Care Act uh, was it, uh, came into force. The latest so, Health the, and the, Care The latest Health and Care Act, <laughs> I stand corrected, um, which put the uh, inter integrated care systems onto a statutory footing. Now, from your, again, experience, the word integration has been floating around as a narrative for, for decades, arguably all the way back to, to, to Bevan. But there seems to be a tangible desire now to make this a reality. We've had a review, of course, from Patricia Hewitt. You're very close to uh, what these developments are. Do they offer hope in terms of the delivery and transformation envisaged by the long-term plan to move into the community, and what implications do they have for workforce? Um, yeah, yes, I, uh, I do believe, is the short answer to your question, that the development of ICSs, ICBs, and the jargon uh, represents an, a huge opportunity, actually, to start to deliver some of the things that successive health ministers, including me, have talked about over decades. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think there are two points I'd make about the uh, the ICS development in the Health and Social Care Act, the latest Health and Social Care Act, is that unlike most previous Health and Social Care Acts, and that was the point uh, that was in my mind, uh, this, these proposals actually are born out of the sector itself. Mm. It, this is not a case where, as so often happens, politicians have gone off for a weekend retreat in some fancy hotel and written a pamphlet and then handed it to the civil service and said, do that. Uh, this is a, a set of proposals that uh, were generated within the NHS with active participation, though there's an issue in that with local government. And so they're born from the sector. And that's mm. the first bit of good news, I think, because 
they 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 reflect both the aspiration, which is the easy bit, and also the practical experience of people who do it about how you can deliver some of the aspirations we all have. That's the first bit of good news, an important element of good news. There's another important element of good news, Mm. which is that this was a piece of legislation that was promoted by the current Conservative government, but which is actively endorsed and embraced uh, by the official opposition in the form of the Labour Party, also for what it's worth embraced by my now current party, the the Liberal Democrats, Mm. uh, because it reflects uh, the delivery of, as, uh, of a policy objective that's been embraced in truth across all the major parties for many years. And so we go into a pre-election period uh, with uh, the two major parties uh, both committed to following through the institutional arrangements that, are, uh, that, are, uh, that came into effect on the 1st of July last year. Now, that's a, a big breakthrough if if it doesn't actually matter from this point of view which party wins the election the development of ICSs will continue to be government policy and that's to be celebrated if there is proper collaboration or at least alignment on that point. precisely that's exactly my point looking into workforce matters a little bit more closely um, public policy projects uh, mission is to draw on past experience to contribute to that debate I'd like and to current experience, and current experience um, but I'd like to draw on some of the experience that you've had throughout your career um, to focus on the issue of, of retention mm-hmm. because it, it's it we, we always talk about growing the workforce and, and we'll come on to that but retention is so important what have you seen or are seeing that perhaps give you some hope that we are going to reverse some of the leakage and people being dissatisfied with it's, you mentioned earlier it's a management leadership issue it's perhaps fundamentally a culture issue I, I just wanted to hear your views because it's it's a I think it's central to what's going to happen in the next few years I totally agree um, I'd actually add a further dimension to that mm. because it's a classic human resource planning people planning mantra isn't it that we need to recruit as you quite rightly say, we need then having recruited to retain. But thirdly, and absolutely critically, you need then to motivate, get the culture right, so that people don't merely stay, but stay because they want to, because they're fulfilled in the in their work. And that idealism that you talked about, that energy around exactly. that, how do we how do we continue to tap that and, and, and enhance it? Well, precisely. That you can have a workforce that sits around because it, you retain it because for whatever reason but that's still only a, that's not delivering the, to the top of the license which is what we should be aiming to do so that as a as an employer and the the NHS fond of saying the NHS is not an organization it's an idea uh, the NHS is actually a collection of organizations and within the national health service there are some organisations that are extremely good at recruiting, retaining and motivating their staff. And the result that you achieve when you, do all, when you tick all three of those boxes is, is hugely different from the result you achieve if you'd only tick two of them, or still worse if you only tick one of them. So the, the, uh, the process of engagement with a workforce particularly in a business as sensitive as the delivery of of health and care services, engaging with the workforce, working out 
what how what represents current best practice fulfilling practice practice that meets the needs of the people who rely on the services reflects the opportunities created by new technology that's the challenge of people management in what is fundamentally a people business people often make the mistake of thinking uh, when you think of the nhs you tend to think of the ivory tower of the uh, high-tech, gleaming new hospital, and they're a key part of the system. Actually, the vast majority of the services that are delivered th- across the health and care system are not delivered in high-tech acute hospitals. They're delivered in, in clinics and at home, in communities all around the country. And enabling people to deliver high-quality services in those settings is the dif- that's the difference between success and failure. And that also, of course, on a broader level, we touch upon is to reflect the communities in which the hospitals are based um, and inclusion and well-being are, are key elements of that. I um, wanted to move on to the, how we're going to grow uh, the workforce. Before we go and discuss the internal domestic way we're doing that, I wanted to touch upon international recruitment. Mm-hmm. It's a, a topic that is still at the forefront of debate. Uh, Bill Morgan wrote a piece for the King's Fund saying that actually there had been insufficient strategic use of international uh, um, recruitment as part of the reason why there are shortages. We don't need to debate that, but just what's the part to play for international recruitment? It's, it's, we've seen in the NMC's register a huge increase in uh, the last year of internationally trained nurses, for example. So that remains a key lever but can't be the only one. Uh, well, indeed not. Um, so you're talking to somebody who's a committed globalist. I know that's an unfashionable view these days. Um, I, and I, I think it's inconceivable uh, that you can deliver the aspirations we've been talking about for UK healthcare and therefore for UK citizens if the UK health and care system is not part of the global health community. Uh, and that's true because it is, the, although I've emphasised the importance of community services and uh, the, the, the less glamorous end, if you will, of healthcare, uh, right across the health and care sector, including in those supposedly less glamorous bits, uh, there is a requirement for our system to be part of that global system in order that it can learn from others and contribute to that process. It's most obvious at the scientific, the highly high-tech end of the service that it's part of a global scientific community. And science doesn't take place within a single nation-state. It is a global activity. And so I think it's important to the health service, to the British National Health Service, that our doctors and nurses and other clinicians practice in other systems in order that they can bring back the learning that comes from that, and that we welcome people from those systems to come and practice in our system. So that's my view of the, of the international question here. Now, having said all that, which I believe very strongly to be true, uh, it's also important that we're good citizens of that global health community mm. And that we don't imagine that every time we're short of doctors, we can go to other countries around the world who have many fewer doctors than we have. And the same thing is obviously true of other clinicians as well. And recruit out of those systems uh, and solve our problem at the expense of making their problem significantly worse. So 
I'm in favour of being part of a global community. I'm in favour of exchange, uh, but I'm uh, but I'm also in favour of being a responsible member of that community. Absolutely. Now, turning to the domestic aspects of how we're going to grow, learning and development training is going to be extremely important because we're going to have new roles, multidisciplinary teams, people working across health and social care, and um, that's going to require expansion of medical places we, we know that but perhaps in your view a more innovative approach and pathways for how people can join the workforce clinician or otherwise i once heard chris wormold say permanent secretary of the department of health uh, that the nhs does not have an innovation problem it has a second adopter problem <laughs> which i think is quite a good way of putting it there are quite a lot. It's uh, putting it sort of slightly less conceptually. Uh, we've all heard of pilotitis in the health service. You you have you get a new idea. You try something. You demonstrate that it works. You go back three years later and you find they're not doing it there anymore. <laughs> never mind anywhere else. So the, the the process of introducing new innovation and then developing that practice, rolling it out in the, in the sort of rather bureaucratic phrase, simply adopting good mm. practice uh, is something we're not very good at. Uh, and, I, uh, and the result of not being good at it uh, is that we, uh, to the cultural point I was making earlier, mm. we, we don't take the opportunity to motivate people by engaging in innovative new developments and so on. Uh, and also, our practice uh, isn't challenged as often as it should be uh, to uh, ensure that clinicians and uh, staff across the health service, but particularly clinicians, uh, practice at the top of their license. That is to say, they, we, in, we invest huge amounts of money, rightly, in training, and then too often we don't use the skills we've invested in creating. Pharmacists are a typical example of this, where we train people to understand the impact of medicines on the human body, and then we invite them to count pills into bottles. <laughs> that It's a complete mismatch between the skills that pharmacists have and the skills that could be used in the delivery of services, both in the community and in hospital. And that, that example, often quoted repeats itself right through the healthcare system. So yes, I'm in favour of innovation, uh, and yes, I'm in favour of people changing their practice, uh, and of course I'm in favour of ensuring that we have training to bring new people into the, uh, the professions. My suspicion is that if we trained, uh, if we ensured that the services changed in ways that reflected the opportunities open to them, we would end up with a rather different definition of the question about what our training requirement was than the one that we tend to end up with when we count the number of doctors and nurses. Although it, on the, the unstated, assum unstated assumption and wrong assumption that you know what a doctor is, so you should just get on and train some. And presumably we can also learn from international experience and also the other sectors, private sector innovation in terms of development and training. Totally. It's a time for perhaps a more inclusive approach in terms of policy, not just a public sector. I couldn't program. agree with you more. It's a rather odd world, isn't it? <laughs> if if uh, we embrace what I was describing as the global view of the health community and exclude from that people operating in this country because they happen to operate in the private sector, that's I mean, just transparently, obviously, nonsense. Perhaps we'll see some uh, 
examples of that in, <laughs> over, the, over the course of the next few years. I, um, well. and, I mean, let's not overstate it. No. Uh, the, uh, there are too many examples of people thinking public good, private bad, or vice versa. I really don't care. Uh, 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 one of the joys I have of having um, uh, re- released myself from the bonds of Tory party uh, um, discipline and ideology and embraced, of course, the ideology of, of my newly adopted party, the Liberal Democrats. Nonetheless, I'm able to talk more openly. Uh, and uh, on these kind of subjects, I very often say, uh, particularly when I'm the guest of the Labour Party, because it really annoys them, uh, <laughs> is to say I'm an, a straightforward Blairite. What matters to me is what works. Pragmatism, I think, uh, has had a bad rap over the years. <laughs> um, one final question on growing the workforce, and that uh, phrase that you used a couple of times, um, helping clinicians work at the top of their licence. And that's the role, I know it's close to your heart, of, of technology. We're seeing um, AI, machine learning coming into it. Um, but less prosaically, we're also seeing virtual wards, digital um, data use, etc. We're a long way from where we need to be. But just touch upon how important that is, because that truly could be an enabler for the healthcare workforce to work at the top of its uh, license. Yeah, well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, technology uh, and different forms of technology uh, represent huge opportunity for the health and care system. Uh, and in that, of course, uh, the health and care sector is like every other sector of the economy, of economic, every other aspect of human activity. I mean, take a, an example from a totally different sector, uh, banking. Hmm. I have, the, my, uh, people from, with my background are often suspected of being bankers. My only relationship with the bank is that I'm a customer. Get that on the record. But <laughs> my relationship with my bank is totally different from what it was when I uh, first opened a bank account 50 years ago. In those days, I went to a physical set of premises and I did it by exchanging, Mm. uh, by talking to a bank manager and a clerk on a desk and all of that. All your younger viewers won't remember, but that's what banking used to be. Uh, These days, I don't remember the last time I went into my branch Mm. uh, and I relate to my bank purely almost not entirely but almost entirely through digital communication now i yet when i need to see a clinician hmm. i still have to go to sit at the uh, the equivalent of the bank desk to have a private a personal conversation why can't i do the same thing uh, with the health service as i can with the banking system that is to say use technology to avoid uh, um, face-to-face interviews when they're not necessary, not so that you don't have them, but so that you have them when you need them, and when you need them, they're long enough for people to be able to do the job. And that becomes particularly important as we move to community-based settings, almost hospitals at home or clinics at home and in the community where we'll need to be able to access technology to make that work. When I was a health minister, I was invited to endorse a programme of hospitals without walls. Uh, it's a phrase that I don't think is used anymore for fairly obvious reasons. It sounded, when I was first introduced to it, like a treasury um, spending <laughs> cut. <laughs> but the, the concept that you can deliver not just 
uh, routine community services of the traditional kind, but actually quite sophisticated uh, acute medicine uh, outside hospital and for better still inside the citizen's home without needing to take them to an institution. That's a, a train of thought which uh, we, we're on the journey. I'm not suggesting this is a new idea and nobody's ever thought of it. But I don't believe we really thought through what the real implications of that could be mm. for the citizen in terms of improved experience of access to care and delivery of outcomes by care, but also for the, the way in which people work within the system. That's a, a thought process that uh, other sectors are ahead of health and care in applying those principles. And perhaps an opportunity for, for, for all of us. What, one final question, if I may. We're, we're um, 18 months uh, maximum from uh, a general election. Uh, as you said, the parties are aligned uh, um, on the structure and those big structural changes. Uh, Mr. Starmer's set out his mission. Um, I know you've uh, moved away from office, but if I can just have the thought experiment of putting you back in the seat, if you were Secretary of State, mm. what two or three key things do you think will make the biggest difference over the course of the next parliament not, not putting words in your mouth uh, you know preventative care and workforce plan but i'm, I'm just going to leave that hanging in the air uh, well you might uh, it follows from everything that i've said <laughs> that both of those uh, uh, are essential mm. um, actually the biggest thing is the word you've used a couple of times is culture Mm. And it's culture within the services for all the reasons we've discussed. The one thing we haven't discussed mm. is culture within the Department of Health mm. and the centre of the National Health Service. And uh, I've said I think the development of ICSs and ICBs is a, is a key opportunity and a key uh, uh, step towards a more joined up, locally integrated set of public services delivering health outcomes. All of that is true if people within the, the localities learn a new culture of developing local solutions which address local issues. And that culture of, of collaborative working between care providers, care commissioners, across health social care, I would add social housing and other public services, simple provocation. Local authority cuts a library service, increases social isolation, increases problems with mental health. 20% of physical, physical health problems have their roots in mental health problems. So you cut the library service and you end up with more people in A&E departments. So joining that up at local level mm. is a key part of cultural change. But then going back to the centre, that will only happen if the next Secretary of State for Health, and that's why it's relevant to your question, mm. understands they're responsible for health outcomes, they're not responsible for trying to micromanage healthcare delivery right around 15% of the UK economy. That's undoable by anyone, the Soviet history proves that. What they should focus on is letting people do it and recognise they're responsible uh, for the policy context in which it's delivered they're not responsible for day-by-day -day delivery. So to messenger, etc., refuse to give the autonomy at local levels for leadership and people to flourish? Correct. 
on that hopeful note, Stephen Doyle, thank you very much for your time. I'd like to take this opportunity uh, to wish the NHS and the Modern Social Care System a happy 75th anniversary. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. If you want to find out how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare.com forward slash Voices of Care. In the meantime, I'm Sahel Mirza. Thank you very much and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Voices of Care is published by New Cross Healthcare. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.